thus far in the Sermon on the Mount in unpacking the righteousness that must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus has been focused on the moral life of the believer in engaging the Torah. Now, he's still doing that here uh, in our text from Matthew chapter 6. But here he's also turning to look at what this surpassing righteousness would be like, or what what it looks like, the shape it takes, in the realm of personal piety. Right, so he's now in the realm of your piety. The gospel calls us to the doing of good works, to works of charity, to works of piety. There's no dispute about that. There's nothing controversial about it. Yet, yet, yet because the human heart is what it is, right, because the web of sin is so deep and insidious in us, it turns out that doing good itself is fraught with spiritual peril and danger. Right? That's bracing. That's a sobering reality. To think that it's not sinful activities which Jesus has in view here. This is devout religious practice. Right? These are activities which are at the summit of Christian piety. Right? It's these activities, which it appears, are occasions for great spiritual defilement, even for judgment. Precisely in the realm of the holy things, the highest things, the noblest and best things, sin intrudes and profanes. Right? What kind of a world is it? What kind of people must we be, even as disciples, for Jesus is not addressing unbelievers, that the doing of the good, of the highest and the best things, can then be the gateway, the very path to self-righteousness and pride and ultimately to judgment. And it's just this dynamic This terrifying reality, which Jesus, maybe we're not, but Jesus is acutely sensitive to. After all, he was crucified by a bunch of do-gooders. It's this reality that Jesus addresses in the text. And so we're going to look at it under four points. They're there in your bulletin on the outline sheet. Uh, The general principle, and then really three acts of, of piety, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. So first here, the general principle, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Practicing our righteousness refers to these deeds of concrete, practical piety that we are called to do in the gospel. We are called, we we are righteous, We are to demonstrate righteousness, and it needs to be practiced. We have to practice at it. It has to be put into action. If we are to be zealous for good works, and we are, then Jesus says, be careful for dangers lurk. Isn't that a kind of a remarkable opening? Like he's going to talk about prayer and almsgiving and fasting. And you know what two words he starts with? 
Be careful. It's kind of, kind of not our instinct, is it? It's like, that's great. Uh, let's set up this prayer meeting and let's do this and we'll start that and we'll do this. And we'll feed these people and we'll fast on Tuesdays. And Jesus' first words are, be careful. Be careful of the manner that you do these things in, he says, and be careful of the motive. The manner or the, the, the way we do them, he says, you're not to do them in front of others. Now, of course, some, some amount of visibility by others for some deeds is, is inescapable. Jesus is not abolishing all public acts of piety here. He's not, he's not abolishing temple worship or synagogue worship. But we are to seek obscurity and anonymity wherever possible. And there are certain deeds which by their very nature are sort of gravitate toward a private or a secret setting. So often, you know, we, we do things in a certain way precisely because our motives are corrupt. What's, what's the motive that Jesus is concerned about in the text? It says, to be seen by men. So Jesus is aware that the, following him, the Christian religion, like religion in general, can be and has been, right, fertile ground for this sort of subtle and not-so-subtle self-promotion. Right? We're on a kind of ground here that is easily hijacked. We want people to think we are pious. And so we make sure that we let them know about our charity. Now, we're very subtle about it, but we, you know, often we do it incidentally. Not, of course, with the ostentation of the Pharisees, but, you know, without really making a big deal about it. We let them know. Right, beloved? I mean, being seen and noticed and praised for one's piety is a powerful drug. And like all drugs, it induces distorting effects into the human soul. It twists and it mangles and it it involves us in a kind of self-deception. And devout people, devout people, serious people, like the Pharisees, right? Like us Bible-believing conservative types can become and do become addicted to this. And assuming that it's not a problem Right? That's a major part of the problem for us. Because right? one of the many, many ironies of sin, the ironies that it produces, is that you know, we are obsessed. We are obsessed with what others think because we are obsessed with ourselves. And so Jesus says, be careful. Be careful if you behave this way to be seen by men, because, he says, notice, you will have no reward. Not a diminished reward, no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Implied, of course, is that instead of a reward, we will face judgment. 
So now we're into some fairly deep waters, right? I mean, you're talking about these deeds of piety, and Jesus is saying, essentially, you can have a life totally given over, apparently, to the service of God as, say, a leader or a missionary. And in the end, all can be lost, right? No reward. The whole edifice can be a facade of self-aggrandizement and spiritual pride and the subtle stroking of one's ego with no interior depth or substance. The whole thing exists on the surface. You know the phrase of Potemkin village, right? It comes from the, the 18th century where this guy named Potemkin who was involved with Catherine, who was the queen of Russia, and uh, she would make these tours around, and Potemkin, to impress her, would set up these villages. He just spr- they just spring up. And they were just the external fronts of buildings. She'd come down the river, and he- she'd look, and they'd be look, oh, there's a thriving town there. And then she'd pass, they'd take the town down, they'd strip it down, they'd run it down the river, they'd set it up again. So when she passed down there, she'd see the next town. Right? And thus is coined this phrase, a Potemkin village. Well, that's how our spirituality is in many cases. It's a Potemkin village. We take it up, we put it off, we put it down, we move it down the river if we need to. But there's no life behind there. There's no furnished rooms. There's no treasure back there. Right? This, this can often happen to us because of our hearts. And it often happens unbeknownst to the person that it's happening to. We are much more concerned, I think, to appear pious than to do the hard, lonely, private work of actually being devout. Because that can be a grind. It's easier to put the Potemkin village up, and from a distance, it looks just like a city. Now, Before we move to the three examples our Lord gives, I want to state this is not a contradiction to what he said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you might remember, back in chapter 5, he said, Let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I think the difference is that in Matthew 5, we are seeking the glory of our Father in our public behavior. And here, in Matthew 6, We're doing deeds in public, which should probably, for the most part, be done in private. And so we're seeking our own glory. The the sin in Matthew 5 is cowardice, not letting your light shine. The sin in our text is vanity. Manufacturing fake light. John Stott says here that a good rule of thumb is we should show when we're tempted to hide and we should hide when we're tempted to show. So that's the general principle that Jesus is dealing with. It's a principle we must assimilate because I think we are prone to forget it. The second point then, first example Jesus gives of practicing our righteousness is charity for the poor, almsgiving. Matthew 6, verse 2, so when you give to the needy, deeds of mercy toward the poor, commanded repeatedly, both in the Old and New Testaments, that's what's in view. And, And notice that here, 
and this will be the case with prayer and fasting, Jesus assumes we will be active in giving to the needy. It's when you give, right? It's not if you give. So it's important to hear this, right? The dangers involved never justify abandoning the works. The dangers involved never justify inactivity. The church and the world are full of people who have seen the hypocrisy of the church. It's not that hard, right, to spot it. And their their reaction is to just disengage, to do nothing, to sit on the sideline. The dangers involved never justify abandoning the good works. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. Now, it's, it's not clear that this was literally done by first century Jews. So this is probably a metaphor. Right? Jesus is saying, in our terms, we would say, don't blow your own horn. Don't blow your own horn. Don't have your gifts announced. Don't broadcast them. Don't publish your list of donors. Don't enjoy seeing your name in print. Don't put your name on buildings or streets. If someone wants to put your name on a building after you're dead, well, fine. Give anonymously. And we shouldn't think, as apparently the people Jesus has in mind did, that we can cover this over with the pious excuse that, after all, this is for the poor. This is what the text continues, the hypocrites do, Jesus says. They do it in the synagogues, they do it in the streets. And, you know, hypocrite is the word used of actors that has to do with putting a mask on. We're familiar with this. It speaks of insincerity. It speaks of kind of assuming a false identity. But it's part of the danger of engaging in Christian charity. Hypocrisy is almost inevitable in the Christian life. I say almost. Because because the standard is so high, and we fall so far short, that we're perpetually tempted to look better than we are. Or to present ourselves as better than we are. This is why the doctrine of free justification is so important. But this hypocrisy is always close at hand with us. So these people that Jesus has in mind, they give to impress, to deceive others about their piety, often non-existent or anemic piety. They seek, the text says, to be honored or praised or applauded by others. So again, we are prone to seek glory from men under the mask of piety. Jesus spends a lot of time on this, in fact, in John chapter 5, where he says you cannot seek glory from men and glory from God at the same time. You're not going to be able to do that. Spurgeon, as witty as he always is, says that a check or a good deed in one hand and a trumpet in the other hand is the outfit of a hypocrite. And so then Jesus soberly warns, he adds this, he says, Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. In full. 
These are really dreadful words. The language is from the commercial or the business world. It means the transaction is finished. Right? The applause and honor of men is the only reward such a person will get. But they have not been cheated. Because, in fact, that's the only reward they were looking for. It's the only one they want. Often it's the only one we want. In contrast to this, he says, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Again, this is a call to hide, not broadcast. The secrecy not only excludes others, but the language, right? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. The language indicates that in some sense, your charity is to be hidden even from yourself. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean like you don't know what's in your checkbook. But it speaks of a kind of self-forgetfulness, which replaces self-congratulation. This type of giver, the type of giver Jesus is trying to instruct us to be, this type does not secretly pat themselves on the back for their charity. You know how slippery our heart is? You can give anonymously and avoid seeking the praise of men, all the time quietly congratulating yourself on just how wonderful you are. We can put on quite a show for ourselves, even in private. Such is the nature, the labyrinth of the fallen human heart. It's able to take a deed of mercy and turn it into a deed of vanity, or a deed of altruism and turn it into a deed of egoism. What looks like self-consecration becomes self-congratulations. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And you know what a good example of this is? And it comes from the final day when the rewards will be passed out. Matthew 25, the great judgment of the sheep and the goats, right? These people are an extraordinary example of what Jesus is after. When they were told that they had fed and clothed and visited Jesus, they said, what? When did, when did we do these things? And Jesus had to remind them, what you did to the least of these, you did to me. They were completely uncalculating and self-forgetting in their generosity. They were surprised by their own charity on the last day. Oh, I forgot that. They're going to watch the film and think, oh, yeah, I forgot all that. Right? Write the check. Feed the hungry, visit the sick, clothe the naked, get in your car, turn on the radio, forget about the whole thing before you get home. It's not that hard for me. I forget what I do yesterday anyway. But it might be hard for some of you younger people. This is the manner of giving. Forget about it before you get home. And and Bonhoeffer says this type of giving is the death knell to the old man because it refuses to stroke our ego. This is a charity which is content to have God alone as witness. And then Jesus concludes, he says, your father. Now, I want to stop here. Notice this. 
These deeds are always done by justified people, people who already have God as Father, people who are not seeking merit or a place in the household of God. Your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. This phrase is packed with importance. God is the all-seeing God, whose presence penetrates down into the secret places. The secrets, the thoughts, the intents of the heart. The secret God sees into the secret depths of the person. The realm of true righteousness. The realm where the kingdom of God operates in the spirit. This is unnerving to some. That God can see and know all these things. That he's the omniscient God. I remember the atheist Christopher Hitchens saying, that sounds sounds to me like living in North Korea, to have this kind of God. But for us, because he's our loving father, this is comfort. This is no threat to you. It means that in our father, we have the only audience that we require. The only audience our deeds require. So the text is in many ways about choosing the audience for your piety. We want both audiences, right? We want God and we want men. But Jesus is saying you're not going to be able to have God and men or God and yourself as the primary audience for your charity. And know well, he says, your father sees he will reward you. Our father in heaven the one who in Christ bids us to lay up our treasure in heaven will reward us in his kingdom. You can look at the word reward up. It's used 27 times in the New Testament. It's an eschatological word. It almost always refers to what is given at the appearance of Christ. Charity is oriented toward the end, and it's content to wait for its reward then. So the third thing here is prayer. Verse 5, again, it's when, not if, you pray. Don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Again, Jesus is not banning public prayer here. The Lord's Prayer, which, Lord willing, we'll begin looking at next week, begins with our Father, right? So it's to be clearly to be prayed by others and with others. Jesus himself prays in public. But the issue, of course, is our motivation. If you pray more in public than you do in private, then you've probably chosen the wrong audience. The hypocrites, Jesus says, they love to be conspicuous, to be seen. For them, prayer is a kind of theater. And for them as well, the transaction is over. They've already received their reward in full. Rather, he says, rather, he says, we are to go into our room, our inner secret place. Close the door, he says, so that we cannot be seen or heard and pray to our Father. The text says we pray to our Father who is, notice, unseen. Literally, the text says who is in secret. So this is sort of the the richer theological stuff in this text. God is the invisible God. 
the one who is in secret, the one who works incognito, behind the scenes, in contrast to fraudulent worshipers who seek to constantly make themselves visible to men. And so we must believe, we must act as if we believe that our Father is palpably present to us in secret. We have this privilege, right, of access to the highest heavens, to the heavenly sanctuary, to the secret place where God, who is in secret, who is invisible, dwells. Where God is present to see and to reward. For the kingdom of God, Jesus said, we saw this in the call to worship, is within you. It's in your midst. It has its roots in the interior life of the church in secret. God is invisible. He is in secret. So your piety is oriented toward the invisible secret realm. It's often because we don't believe this that we have to have the reward now or the glory now. This is why the Apostle Paul says we look not at things that are visible because they're temporal. We look at the invisible things because they're eternal. That great chapter 11 in Hebrews where it's going through all these heroes of faith, if you will, gets to Moses and says that he saw Christ. He saw the reward, seeing him who is invisible. Right? So at the very heart of Christian faith is an act of perceiving the invisible God who dwells in secret. So we ought to gravitate in a fundamental way toward prayer and charity in the secret places. So finally, fasting, verse 16. When, not if you fast. Jesus' disciples, they didn't fast while he was with them, but of course he promised that when he went away, they would fast. And evangelicals have virtually abandoned the discipline of fasting, which is not a good thing. But the, but the Pharisees and the other Jews of Jesus' day, they fasted two days a week. I don't know. I'm not sure our righteousness is exceeding them on this point. But they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. So not fasting is not the way you know, to avoid Jesus' instruction and rebuke here. Nor is moving the fast days. You know what the early church did? You can find this in the Didache, which is an early 2nd century Christian instruction manual. The teaching of the 12 apostles is the subtitle. But the Didache said, well, the Jews fast on Monday and Thursday, so we're going to fast on Wednesday and Friday. Now, that may not be the right way to approach it, but we need to fast. (laughs) Jesus expects it as a part of piety. In Paul's words, he says you need to pummel and discipline your body, lest you run in vain. Fasting ties very much into this idea of secret future reward. We don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There is a kind of perpetual fasting, right? A fasting of the lust of the eyes and of the flesh, and the seductions of the heart in which Christians are already engaged if they're walking in the way of discipleship. We need to fast. Bonhoeffer said, satiated flesh, flesh that's full, is unwilling to pray and unfit for self 
sacrificing service. Imagine instituting this rule, that you had to fast and pray for someone before you criticized them. It'd be like a descent into some realm of silence. And when we fast, Jesus says, we're not to look the part, to look somber as the play-acting hypocrites do. They disfigure their faces, he says. Literally, they hide or they make their face invisible, possibly with a veil or some other sign of mourning. And here Jesus is being biting and ironic. They make their face invisible so that they can be visible. So that they can show. They hide so that they can show others that they're fasting. They too, he says, have received their full reward. But when you fast, he says, you know, wash your face. Use some oil, wash your hands. Just, this is just ordinary hygiene. It would often be set aside by those who fasted. And Jesus is saying, no, everything should be outwardly normal when you're fasting. So that it won't be obvious to others. But it will be to your unseen, inconspicuous, invisible father. So again, the text is a lot about, you know, we are sensuous, visual, concrete, embodied people. That's noble. But we have an orientation to the invisible realm. Notice again, there can only be one audience the fasting person is trying to please. The one who sees in secret and who rewards our secret fasting. We heard the Isaiah 58 text on fasting read as the Old Testament lesson. There you can see the kind of the connection there. Fasting was to lead to almsgiving, to giving your food away, to sharing it with the poor. And what was the result in that text? It was the renewal and the glorification and the glory of Zion in the earth. So getting these practices right is not just about personal piety, but it resonates out. It's about seeing the glory of God shine forth in the world. Let us conclude. True piety is tricky. It's dangerous because the human heart is tricky and dangerous and slippery. And thus, there's often too great a dissonance between our inward state, which is either all empty or all jitter, and our outward appearance. Too often, Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees could be applied to us, where he says to them, and remember, these were not people who were not devoted to the Torah and to charity. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside. But inside, you are full of dead men's bones. That's a Potemkin village. We don't want to be Potemkin villages. We are to embrace here a serious, holy re-examination of our motives. For the secret, the secret to true piety is in the secret place. We often, there's there's tons of books, right, on Christian piety and Christian devotion and Christian prayer. But you can start here. The secret is get into secret. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. 
Listen to this wonderful quote from Calvin. He says, the theater of God is in the hidden corners of our lives. I think we have an aversion to this. To this kind of serious self-examination under the searching light of God's word. Who likes it? But this is critical. This re-examination, this repentance, always occurs for us in the joyful light of the gospel. This is holy. There's nothing morbid about it. This occurs for us in the light of the one, the one whose obedience, whose prayer, whose charity, and whose fasting cleanses our defective prayer and charity and fasting and almsgiving at every point. The gospel calls for deep motive cleansing by the blood of Christ, for a deep renewal of pious intentions in the spirit. And it continually reminds us, choose your audience carefully. Because we cannot serve God in the crowd or God in ourselves. So let us serve our Father in heaven by discreetly giving to the needy, by private prayer, by hidden fasting. He who is invisible, he who sees in secret, will reward us in his good time. Amen.